Well, this green light is on. I don't know when I turned that on at some point singing that song. So if y'all heard a really bad tenor there too loud, sorry about that. I didn't uh, I don't know how I got that turned on already. But anyway, it is good to be here tonight. I appreciate your presence. It's a little bit chilly out there. It's kind of nice. I love this time of year. I'll tell you what, you can't get much better than the fall of the year. It's, uh, you know, the leaves are starting to change. The colors, if we're lucky, maybe maybe we've had enough moisture that they won't just be all dull and dry. And I know a lot of people head up to the northeast and, you know, for the fall and to see the beautiful leaves and all of that. And then, you know, I love it because of that, because the weather's comfortable for the most part right now. Now, it's going to get cold, and the older I get, the colder it gets. But and right now, it's just nice, and it's deer hunting season, so, I mean, it's hard to beat this time of year. You know, I really appreciate it. You know, I've, I've mentioned, I've, well, I've mentioned, I know, at lunch Sunday, I don't know if I mentioned up here or not, but, you know, I'm hard of hearing. I'm getting older every day, and, you know, my dad just about deaf, even with hearing aids, my mom before she passed a couple of weeks ago, couldn't couldn't have heard it thunder hardly, and uh, you know. So when he announced, when he told me, I thought he you said someone was baptized, but I didn't catch all of it. So that's fantastic news. But you know, a lot of times when we don't hear things exactly right, you know, you can get things wrong. I remember when I when I was in school at Freed Hardeman, I was in that first four year class that graduated in '76 when it transitioned from a junior college to a to a full four-year college. I was there from 72 to 76. And, and a couple of summers, I sold books with Southwestern door-to-door. And so one of the other salesmen, he, he was telling the story about how he had, uh, you know, he had, he had got, was in talking to a lady. And, and it's funny if you just listen to people. And she was telling him about her, you know, she had been to the doctor. And she said, I don't know if I can buy this book or not. And he said, why? She said, well, my doctor told me I got problems. And he said, what is it? And she said, he said, I've got very close veins. (laughs) And he said, really? How close? She said, I don't know. But the doctor said they were very close. Well, you know, and then then sometimes people don't get their words exactly right. I was talking just a few minutes ago to Bill before service started about a preacher uh, over in another part of Alabama, you know, Alabama, Wayne Dunaway. I don't know if you know him or have heard of him or whatever, but brought brought it up is because one of the brothers here said, "Now I don't want to hear that sermon about Tennessee and Alabama and Auburn again." And that's the sermon, Crimson Tide, War Eagle, and the Volunteers that I got from Wayne Dunaway. I heard him do a little talk on it, and I thought I'm going to make that into a sermon. So, anyway, but he was telling he was telling a story. In fact, the same time that he came to to Decatur and provided the a talk for way back when when the a Heritage Christian University dinner didn't involve five or six of us local preachers making fools of ourselves as it has for the last six or seven or eight years. But anyway, back then they'd get somebody to come in and talk or whatever. And so he did, and he was telling the story. He's, you know, Wayne apparently preaches similar at least to my dad. You know, I guess he quotes a lot of verses and stuff. And so he said, he was telling me about my dad. He said, you know, I had a lady come up to me one day, and she said, Brother Dunaway, she said, I tell you what, you and James Watkins are the two men I know that have a pornographic mind. <laughs> she was trying to say photographic memory, but, you know, as, <laughs> so I thought, okay, whatever. You know, we have to be careful, you know, about the words that we use and how we use them, and especially those of us what can't half hear, you know, and uh, that's why I'm very careful to try not to say, uh, okay, fine, because I don't know what... Half the time I'm agreeing to. Anyway, that's not what we're here for tonight, though. I had, an, I had a sermon that I was going to do, and I changed my mind just like right there on the front pew. And so 
I brought another one just in case. I may do that one tomorrow. I don't know. I'll think about it some more. But the, the title of that one was Six Words That Can Kill a Church. And uh, I don't know if that might, I don't know if that work, you know, for the folks here or not. But anyway, I'll think about it some more. But what I want to do this evening instead, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> in 1 Peter chapter 2, I think I will begin at verse 9. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men." as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. The idea that's expressed there is that children of God, Christians, are a different class of people. Amen. We are not run-of-the-mill folks of the world. We live in the world. And we'll not be... And, you can't get out of this world alive. That's just all there is to it. But we are not of the world. We are to live on a plane of life that is above. And I don't mean self-righteous. I'm not talking about better than everybody. I'm talking about a, a level of life that is provided by the forgiving, life-giving blood of Jesus Christ. And those who have submitted themselves to the will of God and been immersed in water with a penitent heart with a believing mind and determined to put to death the old man of sin, burying him in that watery grave of baptism, and then resurrecting out of that watery grave, and by the operation of God, Colossians 2 around verse 12, we are made a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and we walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3, and 4. When I have done that, because of the grace of God, and the blood of Christ that by his grace provides forgiveness, Ephesians 1, 7, then I am elevated to a level of life that is saved. And that's different. I still look the same. I've still got the same job. I still, you know, I still have a lot of the same things in my life. I still owe the same bills and all that. But I am new now. I'm different. I've been made into a creature, if you will, that's new, remade spiritually, in the image of Christ. And I am to live like that. So we are, as he says, a royal priesthood, God's very own special people. And so we are not of the world, but we live in the world, and we live in a world today that, and, and of course I mentioned this the other, yesterday, you know, we think it's bad, but we look at Noah, and out of the hundreds of millions of people on the planet, there were only eight that were faithful enough to God to get in the ark. So Noah had it a lot worse than we'll ever understand. But we look around and we see just things that are headed south, you know, 
I just it's terrible. I mean, things are going downhill. Culture is changing, and it's not changing for the better. You know, and it's, there's so many things in our culture. They change almost overnight, it seems like. I and mean, I'm 64 years old, and just in that six decades that I've lived, and you can forget the first one, because I probably don't remember much of anything from it, but just, you know, from the last 50 years that maybe I can remember things, it is amazing the changes that have taken place in the thinking and the, and the level of acceptance and, and so on of our country, and I would assume around the world, that our culture is so different. You know, we've got feminists today that are just going to protest any kind of children's toy or television show that try to affirm male and female stereotypes. In other words, you know, if you've got a show that says mom's at home and she's the mother, and oh, no, you know, you know you get, or if you've got dolls that, you know, that they're guys and gals and, and, they, and they dress up the girls like girls and they dress up the boys like, there's folks that will complain about that. Comedians are uninvited from their gigs because they tell a joke that might offend some group over here and everybody is offended. I mean, everybody in this country today is a victim. You know, I mean, you say one thing and it's like, oh, you've offended. You know, we're looking for things apparently to offend us. Progressives demand in our culture that every gender, and I'm not talking about just male and female here, every gender, however I choose to describe it, should be respected and accommodated. And I don't know if this is bad or good or if it even means anything, but it's just what's going on in the South. And that is, you know, Confederate flags and statues are being removed all the time from places where they've flown for, for you know, over 100 years, for decades at least. And I'm, again, I'm, I don't, if, if that's offensive to somebody because of the history, I guess, but I mean, I, you know, we didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't do that, but I don't know. Maybe that's not a big deal. I don't know, but college students... Now, they're campaigning to change the names on buildings because the person that donated all these millions of dollars to have this place built, now suddenly they find out somewhere in his or her past there was some sort of questionable behavior. And the questionable behavior is defined as questionable by, you know, our modern cultural norms, not by the day in which the person lived. So let's change all that. And folks think, you know, racism will no longer exist. No one will be honored in our society if there is even a shred of offensiveness that can be found in his or her past. Everyone will be respected for sexual choices and acts of, as the feminists put it, toxic masculinity. That's something, in other words, you hold the door open for a woman, you know, you help her on with her coat. That is an act of toxic masculinity. You are poisoning her mind by making her think she... You know, it amazes me. I mean, I told my girls, you know, when they were when when they were teenagers, I said, when that guy comes to pick you up, number one, he's going to come to the door, all right. And then secondly, when you go out to get in the car, you stand there, and if he doesn't come around and open your door, you don't get in. Amen. And if he leaves, you let him leave, and you come on back in the house, because if he's not going to open the door for you, you're not going with him. You know, I don't know how well they adhered to that necessarily all the time, but, you know, they thought it was kind of funny, but that's, you know. And, of course, at the time, at that point in time, I was in my 40s, and I was in the gym every day. I had 18-inch biceps, about a 33-inch waist. I could bench over 300 pounds, and those guys were scared to death of me. And I loved it. I encouraged it. I did it every, you know, any time I could. I would, if I knew one was coming over, I'd... I'd 
have on one of these sleeveless shirts and I'd go pump up the arms or just anything, you know, to kind of instill that. I don't want them, you know, I could tell you a story about one time, but I won't. But anyway, my daughter even thought it was funny, but uh, I'll put it this way. The guy never tried to touch her all night. I know that. But anyway, it's what's happening in our culture is obvious. Folks want to remake the world or as they see it, they want to rid the world of every ill that they think is an ill and replace it with their moral code so that their moral code is upheld everywhere. And all that, sound familiar? Yeah, it's going on all the time. All the time. You know, you remember when there was a time, even in Hollywood, where if it came out that you were homosexual, your career was over. Now, it just enhances your career. People, I mean, flaunt it and brag about it. And, you know, we as Christians, we don't hate people. God doesn't hate people, but he hates the sin. And it amazes me now that even in the religious world, Things that were wrong 30 years ago in all religions, pretty much, so many of them now, all of a sudden, it's not wrong anymore. And what's changed? Has the Bible changed? No. And we wonder why churches are dying. We wonder why people are just giving up on organized religion altogether. Well, I don't wonder. If you just try to use a logical brain, you know, you go here and you go down the street and you go across the road and you go down this way and, you know, you find four or five different brands of what the world would call Christianity, and I put that in in quotation marks, and all of us claim to get our doctrine from the same book, we all claim to follow the same Lord, and we all say we're headed for the same, that we want to get to the same heaven. But they come and talk to me, and I show them scripture as to what I believe, and then they go down the street and they talk to somebody else, and he says, well, no, we don't believe it that way, we, we believe this. And then they go talk to another one, and they go, no, 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 we don't agree with either one of those, we believe this, and the next one, and the next one. And then the crazy thing is, everybody except me, all the rest of them say, but you know, none of that matters. We're all going to heaven anyway. We're all going to the same place. Now you think about that. Just apply a little logic to that. You claim you're using the same book and you teach diametrically opposed doctrines on something as critical as how to have your sins forgiven, and you expect me just to go, okay, and then when you tell me none of that matters anyway, we're all going to heaven, why would I fool with any of you? Why would I bother? And so people by the thousands are no longer bothering. They're leaving mainline denominations in droves, and they're raising a generation of people that look at that and go, that's got to be ridiculous. Who needs that? And then you back that up with the fact that for the last two generations, they've been taught nothing but evolution in school, and that there is no God, and then they see the foolishness of the religious world, and they they don't see the point in it. There's no point. And we as Christians are trying to correct that. But the problem sometimes, I think, is we may be trying to correct it the wrong way. You know, we're talking about fighting this culture war. Maybe it's time that the Lord's church just forfeited the culture war and quit trying to fight it the way we've been doing it. Because as Christians, 
we don't fight on the same battlefield as people of the world. Amen. We do not do that. We have made that mistake, though. We've tried to fight this change in culture, this acceptance of, of you know, all these transgenders and everything, that, that you know, and abortion and all the, the, the moral policies that our government supports now. We've tried to change that the same way that people in the world try to change it. We complain all the time that the politically correct crowd is trying to remake the world the way that they want it, and yet, in the past... What have we done? We've relied, for the most part, on the majority of Americans having common sense. We've relied pretty much on the majority being rational, basically moral people, to carry out God's will in a way that God really never intended. And you know what I'm talking about. We still do it today. And I'm not, I'm not talking about that it's all together wrong, but I'm saying it's, is it effective is the question. We've tried to make the world conform to God's image by legislation, by legislators, by boycott, by petitions and letters. Write to your senator, write to your congressman, vote for this guy, vote for this guy. How successful have we been? How much are we changing the world to remake it in God's image? You know, I mean, I realize like in our last presidential election, like, what we got in this country now? 350 million people? And those two were the best we could come up with? Really? And, you know, I voted, and I voted for the guy, I'll tell you, that's in the White House, and there's a reason for that. I'm reminded of the story of the cotton farmer. And he had a city slicker coming, and he's going to show him his cotton field. And he showed him his cotton field, and on, on one of these plants, on one of those cotton balls, there were these bugs. One of them was a big old bug, and the other one was smaller. They looked the same, but one was a lot larger than the other one. And that city slicker said, well, okay, you got a big bug. He said, what's that little bug? He said, oh, that's the lesser of two weevils. That's how we got the one we got in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue now. He was the lesser of two evils. And, that's, and yet we have people, and you know, to say that it, you know, we, this is not a Christian nation, the United States has never been a Christian nation. Now, were we founded on Judeo-Christian principles? Yes. Freedom of religion is the primary reason that the folks came on the Mayflower and other times. No doubt. And what has made us great? A lot of the adherence to those biblical-type principles. But have we ever been ruled according to God's will? Of course not. No, we're, but we have always been a nation that had a light shine the light of freedom and democracy, and we have lost that. People just want our money now. They don't really care about much else, as far as I can tell. And, you know, and we keep trying to change that through the ballot box and so on. You know, it's just like folks this last Christmas tried to force Starbucks to put Christmas on their cups last year, their coffee cups. You know, we want, they'll say, Happy Holidays. We want you to say Merry Christmas. You've got to say Merry Christmas. You can't quit. You've you got to say Christmas. Why? What's that got to do with me and you? Now, I'm not denying I don't have a problem with people saying Merry Christmas, and it does bug me that people won't say Christmas because they don't want to recognize anything to do with Christ at all, even though Christmas is not a religious holiday, and we don't know when he was born. But the point being, you know, there's been similar things like that done over the years to try to get the world to stop acting like the world. And how successful have we been? The world is still acting like the world, and you know why? 
because it's the world. And there have always been two classes of people in God's sight. Skin color doesn't matter, nationality doesn't matter, language you speak doesn't matter. There's two people. There's the lost and the saved. The world and the church. And that's it. And nothing else, when this life is over, literally nothing else matters. The world has been the world since the day Cain and Abel came along, and it always will be. And those who follow God are those who follow God. And those who don't are the world. And, you know, it's naive of us to think that we can change that through worldly tactics, that somehow using their own tactics, we can change the world to make it more like God would have people be. It's not going to happen. The world is just flat out going to be the world. And there's a reason. Because it always has been. And the world, what's it going to do? It's going to hate Jesus. That's what they're going to do. And they're going to hate his followers. And we act like that's something new. It's nothing new. Jesus said it in John chapter 15. If we go back there and start at verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. <coughs> Folks, Jesus said the world hated him, and it will hate his followers. And they hate him because he came and he shared the truth, and that truth condemned them, and they don't like it because nobody likes that, and they still don't like it, and they never will like it. And our job is not to try to change them using worldly tactics. That's not how the church works. See, Paul, by inspiration, called on Christians to stop judging the world in a way that makes us withdraw ourselves from them. We can go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll start reading at verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, Put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul, by the inspiration of God, is telling Christians, stop trying to judge the world and say they're evil. I'm going to get away from them. Of course they're evil. He says, I've told you not to keep company with idolaters and extortioners and all, but not those folks in the world because the world's full of people like that. 
If you try to avoid having contact with adulterers and extortioners and idolaters in the world, you're going to have to get out of the world. And consequently, what we have done, we've taken that to mean we don't need to have company with any of these people. And so therefore, we have withdrawn ourselves into a little ball called the church. And we have very little impact on the world around us. And Paul says, that's not the idea. You don't judge the world. God will judge the world. I'm telling you, and he was dealing with a sexually immoral man in the, within the congregation, you judge within the church. You let God make the determination out there. You don't, you just be who you're supposed to be. You live the kind of life you're supposed to live. We've taken a tactic that insulates us from the world, and then we sit back and complain about the world's ungodliness. But is complaining changing anything? See, that's the thing. If we fight the world's battles on the world's battlefield, we are going to lose. And it doesn't take a genius to look at the culture just in this country, and you can see from a glance, we are losing. So what's the answer? It's not that complicated. We need to go back to God's way. We forfeit the culture war. Let them fight it out on their own worldly battlefield. We're going to take the fight to another level entirely. Remember this. See, this world, this is not my home. And our goal was never to cleanse the world and make it a perfect, easy place for us to live. That's never the goal. Our goal is to take the gospel to the world and give people an opportunity to become children of God. And in so doing, they will clean up their own lives and their own part of the world, and then we can have a positive effect on society, perhaps. But to continue to try to fight the world's battles on the world's battlefield, it's not going to happen. We need to make a real effort to keep our, our eyes on the Savior and on our reward in heaven. Because what happens then? <clears throat> oh, then, when Christians live with their eyes on Christ, knowing he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, it lights up my life with the love of God and the will of God. And then I light up my part of this world. As long as I'm trying to fight darkness with darkness rules, darkness is going to reign. When I fight darkness with the light of God's word and God's love, that is when I have an opportunity to bring real change because I'm going to make the world better just because I'm helping bring in more light. See, Hebrews chapter 12, you know in chapter 11, he talked about all those great heroes of faith. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Seeing that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the glory set before him despised the shame of the cross, and now he's at the right hand of the throne of God. What's that? How do I live my life? How do I change the world? By running the Christian race with persistence, with perseverance, patience, steadfastness, looking to Jesus Christ as my example. 
And when you look back at Jesus' life, were there social ills in his day? You better believe it. Was the government run by people that were trying to do godly things? Absolutely not. They were idolaters through and through. And even his own people had forsaken God. Do you see him making political stump speeches? No. Do you see him encouraging people to change it at the ballot box? No. Do you see him encouraging people to pay taxes? Yes. Because he says, honor to honor and so on and so on. I mean, if I own tribute, I owe tribute. I don't have to like it. That's not the point. You know, and every April, actually for us every October, because we always have to file an extension, and, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I had to write a check you know, to our wonderful state. You know, it aggravates me to death. But hey, I do it because, for one thing, they do provide some services, and for another, God tells me to. And if God has blessed me with income enough to where I have to pay them something in income tax, then I guess I really shouldn't complain. I ought to be thankful. And, uh, you know, so... God, Jesus says you give the government its due. And he says that through the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 and several other places. And to pray for those in authority. He never says, however, pray for a long life. He says pray for those in authority that they may govern in such a way that the word of God can boldly be spread. I pray that they do things that can enhance the opportunity for people to become Christians. I don't necessarily pray that this guy have a long and healthy life. You know, I mean, that's fine. But, I mean, I need to make sure I know what I'm praying for and what I'm supposed to be praying for. But I honor those in positions of authority. Whether I agree with them or not is immaterial. These same Roman rulers that Paul said, tribute to whom tribute, honor to whom honor, they are the very ones that apparently had him put to death. That cost him his life. Possibly in the Colosseum, I don't know. Or had his head cut off, I don't know. But either way, they apparently put him to death and he still said, God says, you respect those folks. But you notice Paul, notice how he changed things? When he was under house arrest that first time at the end of the book of Acts, and he writes and he says, you know, I, I, I bring you greetings from Rome, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and, -so and a good number of the royal guard. What? He had converted some of those same soldiers that were watching him as a prisoner. That's how he tried to change the world. By bringing the light of the love of God into the hearts of sin-darkened idolaters. What does Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather they set it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all that are in the room. And then he says, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That is how the church changes the world. By following God, by using His plan. C.S. Lewis, in the book he wrote many years ago called Mere Christianity, said this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, great men 
who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And that's true. We get so wrapped up in the, on, the goings on of this life, of this world, and we make the mistake of thinking that's how we change it. This is what matters. No. What matters is the life to come. And when I realize, as Peter told me, that I am a pilgrim on a pilgrimage to a destination, that destination is heaven. In doing that, social thing, I can bring about change. I can bring about from time to time upheaval. But it's not because I'm trying to, you know, stuff the ballot box. No, it's because I'm bringing down the light of God to a sin-darkened world. It's interesting, but we know this, but it's hard to keep in our minds. The more we think about this world, the less effective we're going to be in changing it. If I keep my focus on heaven, that's where I'm most effective in changing the world around me. If we want to see a better world today, we need to start by fixing our eyes on Christ and let all the rest fall into place. And it will. Maybe not on my timetable, but God doesn't operate on my timetable. You know, we don't know the good we're doing all the time when we're just out there living for God. And that's it. I'm not advocating to stop voting or to stop being involved in the process or any of that. But what I'm saying is let's understand that the world is the world. They're always going to be the world. God knows that. Jesus knew that. There are many that go in at the wide gate that leads to the broad way that goes to destruction. But there are just a few that find the narrow gate on the difficult way that leads to life. It was that way in Jesus' day. It was that way in Noah's day. It is that way today. And as best I can tell, it will always be that way. Because that's the tendency of humanity. We, in the church, our job is to make it to heaven. And to try to take folks with us. And we do that by modeling Christianity. It's time that we stop fighting battles the way the world fights battles. Stop expecting the world to act like they're obedient to God. Because it's not going to happen. What we need to do is just start letting our light shine. And God will take care of the rest. Amen. The power is in the Word. Amen. And when we truly get it out there, that'll make a difference. You remember in Acts chapter 6 when they had that problem with the Hellenistic widows in the church and they appointed the seven men to take care of it and the apostles said, we're going to keep our ministry of prayer in the Word. And then around verse 7, isn't it, that Luke records, and the Word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied. That is the answer. Do I want to change the world? Increase the Word of God in my life 
and as much as I can in the lives of those around me and that's the best I can do and God through the power of the word will take care of the rest could be there's someone here this evening that has not yet made that decision that was made earlier to become a child of God if you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God that's great that's important that's critical but the devils believe and tremble faith is much more than a mental you know intellectual acceptance of the divinity or deity of Jesus Christ yes he's the son of God yes he died on the cross for my sins and yes it's through that sacrifice I can find forgiveness and hope of heaven but I've got to have the trust in God to give him my life and when I do that what that means is as he said if you love me keep my commandments and then John wrote again this time in 1st John 5 3 this is the love of God that you keep his commandments do I love God? Am I doing what he said? Have I come to him in faith without which I can't please him? Hebrews 11.6 Have I turned from a life of sin and turned to God with a penitent heart? Acts 3.19 Am I willing to say yes I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Acts 8.37 If that passage is spurious like many scholars think Romans 10.10 With the heart man believes righteousness with the mouth confession is made and some other passages as well. And then am I willing to submit my life in humble obedience and allow myself to be baptized, immersed, buried in water for the forgiveness of those sins and then rise to walk in newness of life? You say, why in the world do I need to be baptized? Because God said so. Amen. That's why. I don't make the rules and you don't either. There's no man that's ever lived outside of Jesus Christ who had the right to set the entrance credentials for heaven. God lives there. He knows the kind of folks that need to be there. And so he has given us a way to get there. And he and he alone has the right and he has earned that right if he needed to through the sacrifice of his only begotten son to say Alan here is what you need to do you can think all you want what you need to do but I'm telling you here is what you need to do and if I haven't been immersed in water to have my sins forgiven then they're not forgiven it's just as simple as that and when I do then God will add me Acts 2.47 to the church which is the body of Christ over which he is the head Ephesians 1 22 and 23 of which there is only one Ephesians 4 4 and 5 and that one is the household or family of God the pillar and the ground of truth 1st Timothy 3 15 and being the pillar and the ground of truth that means it's the church's job to uphold the truth in a world that does not appreciate it and that is how I can change things if anyone needs to respond to God's love tonight, just come down front while we stand and sing.